and a lot of bank presidents, when they retire, will put their name on that list because it's generally a pretty lucrative position to try to unravel this stuff, and the underlying assets are worth a lot more than the short-term obligations. So they wind up making a lot of money, but there's not many of them right now. So there's lots of complexity here, but it's fascinating when you start digging in to say, what are the checks and balances? And then that was a pun on banking. Did you see what I did? Checks and balance. See that right there? (laughs) I'm a dad. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else filled all up with our English dead. Uh, Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And welcome to an exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach. You don't sound very excited. No, I I was trying to give my serious gravitas voice that I'm about to make a very serious announcement. You are? Yeah. You know, uh, taxes being what they are, the way politics is polarized, all these things... At the end of the day, it's night. There. That was my serious statement. <clears throat> yeah, it was. You got it. It was an accurate and complete statement. I'm yes, proud of yes. you. Yes, I, I, I want to make sure that everybody understands that was 100% accurate and complete. Yes. <clears throat> yes. At the end of the day, it's always night. Yes. Um, so uh, the end of last hour, we sort of touched on something interesting. Yeah. Hey, um, something we didn't mention in the newsletter just wasn't room. But something else came out. The ISM uh, non-manufacturing survey. Uh, what is that? It's a PMI, which doesn't tell you anything. Basically, the purchasing manager survey conducted by the Institute for Supply Management in the non-manufacturing sector of our economy, which is the biggest part of our economy, rose from 51.2 to 51.9. No, what does that mean? Anything above 50 is expansion. And this is the fourth month in a row that the services side, the non-manufacturing side of our economy has had a purchasing manager's index above 50 growing. It's as if it hit kind of a mini downside at the end of last year and has been growing ever since. This is part of what we're looking at right now when we say what recession, uh, what recession is coming. Uh, There may be technically a recession coming in the last part of the year, Right now, Moody's is saying there'll probably be one quarter with either nearly flat or maybe slightly negative GDP, probably the third quarter. The second quarter, they're now saying is maybe 0.5% per year. In other words, what we see is the total economy slowing down to below trend growth, but not shrinking. And then the an interesting thing that came out in the in the jobs report that was published on Friday from the Labor Department is that the manufacturing sector where things where the growth rate has been slowing is now below 50 so it looks like we got contraction in the manufacturing sector but manufacturers are still hiring new workers now why are they doing that i mean if if you if business is going down traditionally what happens we slide into a, we're sliding towards a recession business activity is down uh, orders are down they start laying people off Instead of laying people off, they are hiring people. Why would they do that? Because they're looking at their customers who are telling them what orders they're planning over the next year or so. And they see a growth spurt coming in a few months. When you hire somebody, it takes three to six months for them to become productive. So there is, again, every indication that we are seeing right now in what we consider to be the reliable uh, 
foundational economic principles and 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 asset, I know, assets asset classes in the United States says there is more growth coming in the next year yeah. not a recession here is another piece to that productivity numbers are negative what does that mean well that means that we're retreating we're not able to build as many things in the same number of hours what is that about that sounds really negative it is it's negative it makes it harder to build things it makes it longer to get things done so what's causing it um and this is one of those oddities it's oddities abound these days during the pandemic Working from home increased productivity. Why? Well, there's a lot of studies that have been done on it. There was kind of an emergency feel to it in the workforce. I got to get this done. I've got to. I got to make sure that I do this the right way when I'm doing this. And and over time, so that increased productivity fairly drastically. It was an amazing shift, and everybody was like, "This doesn't make any sense." They're working from home and they're doing more work, and this is amazing. And that lasted for a while, and then. People working from home, productivity rates started dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. So now they're lower than they were pre-pandemic. Working from home is now not as productive. Why? It's the same people working in relatively the same conditions, except when they started, there was a, we got to do this. This is weird. We all have to make adjustments. We all have to. And now it's a, I don't want to go to work. I like sitting at home in my pajamas and the CEOs that you're hearing again and again saying, hey, we're moving from uh, you're in the office one day a week to three days a week because people aren't doing their work. They're not answering emails. They're not showing up for Zoom meetings. They're what's going on here. And this is normal in a big shift, particularly when there's been a lot of hiring. So let's put this on another parallel. Say you're manufacturing. So this isn't something you can do from home. And manufacturing productivity has dropped too. But you just said we're hiring and manufacturing. So any place you've ever worked, listener, who do you get to train the new employees? Well, you generally get the best, the people that know the best how to do what you're doing to train them. Those are the most productive employees. And you take them off the work line to work at quarter speed or less to try to teach a new person how to do it or multiple new people how to do it. And those new people mess things up. I've got two kids and I tell you this, it's a lot easier and faster for me to clear the table than to get them to do it. But I still get them to do it because I didn't get to where I am clearing the table by not clearing tables. So you take the most effective people And you put them in charge of the least effective people and you get a drop in productivity. That lasts until these people get trained. And in manufacturing, that's three to six months. We've had a big spike in hiring. We're seeing the corresponding drop drop in productivity. Three to six months from now, expect productivity to go up drastically because that's the way this works. And otherwise, you're going to see some layoffs in manufacturing because if they can't learn to work, they're not going to get paid. Uh, That's just that's just the way it works. Most people want to keep their job and are willing to work for it. And there's a lot of pushback about going back to the office. But the major trend that we're seeing is that it will occur. The places where it's not occurring and productivity still remains high is mostly in programming, in software development, because the coordination there 
these are a bunch of people, and I, I represent these people well, who are not exactly socially apt. They, they don't do well in meetings. They do a lot better using instant messenger to tell each other what they need to be working on or to share their screens with each other rather than going to a corporate board meeting and looking at printouts or a, or, or a, 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 screen, a slideshow of what they should be doing. I've about beat that one to death. So do you have something else you would like to talk about? Oh, yeah. There's something, there's some, something that a lot of people don't understand about banks. Banks, to a large degree, operate on faith. Oh, yeah. And what happens is as soon as the depositors lose faith in the bank, the bank's dead because they, if, if every, everybody has this mental set that comes out of It's a Wonderful Life, where the people were making a run on the savings and loan to get their cash out in the 1930s, then if you have $100,000 in a bank, they've got dollar bills or whatever in the vault and they can just give it to you. Well, what happens is, let's just say that you had a CD that you opened up, uh, you had a five-year CD at and you're real proud of the fact that your five-year C- five CD is paying you 2.5% when you opened it. And it's still there at the bank, and it's still paying 2.5% a year. And then the bank is loaning out money at 6 or 7% for car loans, and they keep the difference. That's how banks make money. But if you go liquidate your CD, they can't go liquidate $100,000 worth of car loans. I say they can, but it doesn't work real well. Um, to give you money, so they have to have cash from someplace. And if all the depositors with their CDs and savings accounts and checking accounts show up and want their money, or even a large percentage of them, more than about 10%, the bank simply isn't going to have enough money in on hand, cash on hand to pay them back. This is why the federal, one of the reasons the Federal Reserve exists. And if a bunch of people show up and say, I want my cash, and they say, well, we don't have that much cash on hand right now, come back tomorrow, then we get a panic which is, of course, why the Fed Now program is opening up immediately. The, the issue is all banks operate on faith. Back in the early, 19, early 1990s in Central Texas here, we had bank runs. We had banks that rumor was going that the bank was failing because they had bad, bad real estate loans, commercial real estate loans. And people would rush to the bank to get their money out. I remember there was a line that wrapped around the block in Copper's Cove for some bank that was going into there. And of course, the banks couldn't, provide the money. Uh, the Federal Reserve literally, on a couple of occasions, has sent out truck, 18-wheeler trailer trucks full of cash. Yeah, there was a great example of that. Y2K, the Y2K bug. Uh, the year 2000 is coming along. The bank code's going to break everything and the banks are going to not have any money. Well, the Federal Reserve sent out a massive amount of cash that they had the Treasury Mint print up just so that they had cash on hand at the banks to represent a larger portion of their deposits so that people could be given money if there was a run on the bank. That's what the Federal Reserve is for. Yeah, and they, it's important to recognize when you pool your money somewhere with other people's money for use by an institution, it is really important that you understand what you're doing, why you're doing it, what backs that institution, and what risks, if any, your money have, has, have, whatever. Oh, um, man, that's a tense question you've got there. I, yeah, lots of tenses in that one. I, and, and I think people generally don't do that. They simply say, oh, okay, it's guaranteed. I'll put the money in there, and I'll get a better interest rate than I'll get somewhere else. Every once in a while, once or twice a generation, 
that blows up. And we're in one of those positions now where it is starting to blow up a little bit. The Fed is doing some things to put banks in a position where they can have instant liquidity. But look around at every place else that you that you have pooled your money with other people, given it to an institution, not in that order. You give it to the institution, they pool the money. And then ask yourself the question, and this is important at this point in time. It hasn't been important for many, many years, but it is important right now. What happens if that corporation where you have your money fails? It's critical that you ask that question. Why is it critical? Because there are a lot of accounts where if it fails, you're an unsecured creditor. And then there are other accounts, other types of accounts that look very similar, where you're either protected under something called like the Investment Company Act of 1940 or FDIC or those some are, form of federal those, insurance backing. Those are very different things. As a side note, we're not trying to say that the investment company of 1940 is equivalent to the FDIC. No. They're but just different know, different protection methods. It's, it's important to know what protection methods are there, if any, and ask that question. People generally do not ask the question, I have my money at wherever. What happens if wherever fails? What happens to my money? A lot of people although not everyone, are familiar with FDIC at the bank, up to 250000 per account, and what is an account, and how many $250,000 accounts you can have. Banks will talk to you about that readily. They are far less familiar with other aspects, and they become suddenly very familiar with it when something like uh, Lehman Brothers fails or uh, some other company that they thought that where they thought their money was safe fails or an insurance company fails. They suddenly get a quick education. And it's important to recognize that it is a caveat emptor environment where it is up to you to know what happens to your money if the institution where you have it deposited or saved fails. And if you're uncomfortable with that, you probably ought to find someplace where you are comfortable. Yeah. And Kind of give us a timeline on the banking crisis, the, the most recent one. And it, I'm not sure I would call it a banking crisis, except it was a big enough event that the Federal Reserve acted like it was a crisis. We'll call it a crisis. SVB failed. Why did they fail? Well, they didn't have enough liquidity to meet their depositors' demand. Um, First Republic started to fail and was failing in slow motion. Its ultimate failure wasn't a run on the bank. Not like SVB. It was a sale of its stock so that the shareholders lost faith in the executives of the bank. That's a different kind of crisis now. Who's at risk in the first crisis is the depositors. They might not get their money. FDIC came in and covered it 100%. The Federal Reserve opened up these different programs to make sure that banks had cash on hand in the event that they had a run on the bank. So now it was the shareholders' turn to look at the executives of the banks and saying, wait a minute, you were doing just what caused that other bank over there to fail. We don't have trust in you anymore. So the whole banking sector, everybody that's owning stocks and banks right now realizes the whole banking sector dropped. Why? Well, because everybody said, whoa, banking's scary. But specifically, places like First Republic, the shareholders said, not only is this scary, you guys were doing exactly the same thing they were, and they failed. So the crisis is now on the shareholders, the owners of the bank, and they lost a lot of money in both of these instances. The FDIC insurance did not cover shareholders of the bank. They lost their shirts. <laughs> you, this is not unique to the United States. Um, 
when which which bank failed in Switzerland? Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse failed. They had bonds outstanding as well as stocks. And when they failed, there was an entire set of bondholders. They're called subordinates. Who they simply said, "Sorry, you're not getting any money back. You've lost all the money you loaned." to the bank. And they're suing now. But the question is whether they're going to get anything. I don't know, because they're right. basically fighting the government. They're fighting their own government and it's not working real well. What what but, happens when the FDIC takes over? There's probably going to be lawsuits at SVB. This happened mm-hmm. back when um, uh, Countrywide was purchased during the global financial crisis. There's a lot of assets at that bank. But it was purchased on a fire sale. The FDIC said to its little group of bankers, which one of you wants to give a bid on this bank? And in the case of SVB, the bid was nickel on the dollar, and it was the highest bid, so the the FDIC said it's yours. Well, they just bought a bunch of assets. And in bankruptcy, what's hopefully going to happen is the shareholders are going to try to sue the purchasing company to say that contract needs to be upheld for the loans that we gave, for the preferred stock that wasn't um, converted to common stock. So the complexities start coming out in little lawsuits. This is generally done in a bankruptcy, but if you look back at, at Bank of America and Wells Fargo, they made out like bandits in the great global financial crisis because they were able to step in and buy these assets cheaply, extremely cheaply. Yeah, they came with a lot of liabilities, like who's getting foreclosed on and who's not and all of that. But when you're buying at that steep a discount and you have enough cash on hand to make everybody whole for a while, you make a lot of money on that deal. And that's been the case. First Republic is now being looked at. It's being shut up by the regulators and being the assets have to be handled. So what happens to your money in the event that your bank, your bank um, still has assets, but they're shut down because their shareholders have removed the executives and their, and their uh, share price has gone to zero. Well, the FDIC steps in and says, we're covering this. Whatever bank comes to buy it has to honor your deposit and it has to be same day. So that's one of the hard things. And there's some articles in the, different financial press over the last several weeks talking about the stable of bank purchasers. The FDIC keeps a group of banks that it goes to in an auction kind of format saying, hey, this bank is failing. You guys, this is our opening bid. Who wants to bid on it? And what's more, sometimes they make a brand new bank and they've got to grab an executive that's not at a bank right now. And they have to have a stable of people that are willing to step into that position. A lot of bank presidents, when they retire will put their name on that list because it's generally a pretty lucrative position to try to unravel this stuff and the underlying assets are worth a lot more than the short-term obligations. So they wind up making a lot of money, but there's not many of them right now. So there's lots of complexity here, but it's fascinating when you start digging in to say, what are the checks and balances? And then that was a pun on banking. Did you see what I did? Checks and balances. See that right there? (laughs) I'm a dad. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, We are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the Personal Wealth Coach being our title. 
The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the title of the program, it's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. All right, well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, We also have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve that's generally portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.